Today, it's not about crypto. It's actually about something way bigger. This is a Silicon Valley bank and it's collapsed and it could be causing a global banking crisis. And if it is causing a global banking crisis, this global banking crisis could be as big or maybe even bigger than the 2008 crisis. So we're going to be talking about that. At the same time, we've got headwinds coming into crypto. We've got Joe Biden proposing a 30% tax on mining. We've got the New York Attorney General suing KuCoin and in their documents mentioning ETH specifically as a security. We've got Operation Chokepoint out in full force. We've got a lot to talk about. Is there any chance that these markets are going to recover? Should we be buying? Should we be selling? That's what we're going to be talking about today. It's going to be a massive show. Don't miss this show. Out of bed, bitch, go. Get up, get up, and they got go through. Gotta wake up, gotta wake up, bitch, get up. Get up, get up, get up. Get up. Get up. wakey rise and shine we've got a lot to talk about lots happening on the markets remember if you're here just say present uh joseph are you here all right jo J uh, james are you here okay josh are you here great kevin are you here if you had just say present present all right Meltem, are you here present she's present and we've got ishan with us ishan are you here yes sir present present okay i also see rolled i see may i see uh sage if you hear say present delicious deli i see you here Dan says, President. All right, we're all here and we've got a massive, 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 massive show today because we are maybe witnessing the beginning of a global banking collapse. We're going to talk about what the cause of this banking collapse is and what we can do about it, if there is anything we can do about it, and what the implications are going to be onto crypto. We're also going to be talking about Operation Chokepoint. The latest in Operation Chokepoint is that the New York Attorney General is now suing KuCoin for operating illegally as an illegal securities exchange in the U.S., Worse than that, in the papers, they refer to ETH as a security. Is this the beginning of another major attack on crypto? We've got Joe Biden proposing a 30% crypto mining tax, believe it or not. So he wants to penalize the miners by 30%. All of this has bought Bitcoin beyond or below $20,000. And it looks like there's blood in the streets. Question is, should we be buying this blood or is it going to get worse? That's what we're going to be talking about today. So listen. It is a Friday. It's our Friday banters. It's going to be the highest alpha per minute show on the internet. I promise you that. I promise you that. What you need to do, subscribe to the channel, comment below. Let us know what you think of the guests. Let us know what you think of the views and like this content because if you like this content, it helps us get unshadow banned specifically when we're talking about very sensitive things. And we're going to be talking about very sensitive things today. Before we start, as usual, our Friday banters brought to you by NordVPN. I always say to you, especially in times like this, if you are in crypto and you're not using a VPN and you're not masking your IP address with all these lawsuits and government lawsuits going on, you're crazy. You can protect your crypto by masking your VPN. You can surf completely anonymously. 
The exchanges won't know which, which territory you're from. The DeFi protocols won't know which territory you're from. And you can do this for just under $4 a month if you use the deal below. There is a referral link below. Go and use it, get this deal. Save your crypto for $3.35 a month. It's, it's the best $3.35 a month that you'll spend. If you've still got $3.35, because I don't know how many people have still got $3.35 their name after today. Josh, have you got $3.35? You don't. Uh, before we start, we did get some bad news, which is actually good news. So the bad news, which is actually good news, I don't know if it, you, you're even allowed to say that, is we had the non-farm payrolls, which is which is the, the non-farm payrolls is a reflection of the employment situations in the state in the states. And we got 311,000 versus an estimated 225,000, which means more people are becoming unemployed. And that accompanied with the carnage that's happening with the banks has now led the market to believe that the probability of a 25 basis point rate hike is back at 50%. And uh, the probability of a 50 basis point rate hike is back at 50%. So now the market really doesn't know if it's going to be a um, 25 or 50 basis point rate hike. And the inflation data comes out uh, on the 14th, which I think is Tuesday. And that's probably going to be the decider as to whether we're getting 25 basis points or 50 basis points. And I think Jerome Powell must be looking at what's going on in the banking ecosystem now and thinking to himself, what have I done? Because the reasons that the banks have gone down, the reason why this uh, Silicon Valley bank has collapsed, and by the way, you can see it went down 60% yesterday. And... It actually continued to go down today, but the trading in this bank has actually been halted. So you cannot trade this bank. But the reason why this went down is actually all because of the, of the high interest rates. And what happened was that the bank was looking for interest in a time where there was no interest and went out and bought 10-year treasury yields and longer dated treasury yields because that was the only place it could find interest. That's great. But the problem is because interest rates went up, the price of these bonds went down. And so now consumers are asking for their money back. And the only thing that the bank can do is sell these treasuries at a loss. And we're going to be talking about that later in the show. There's a big concern that this may lead to a global banking contagion. And we'll cover that as well with our guests here today. So it's going to be a massive, massive, massive show. I've got massive guests for you. The first guest is Kevin. He's one of the co-founders at Delphi. I've got the DJ and princess, Melton Demers. Melton, welcome back. How are you? And I'm welcome delightful. Back from <laughs> I'm as delightful as one can be on a day when the entire world is melting down. All right, and we've, got, and we've got Ishan with us. You guys know Ishan is one of the favorites here on the channel. Guys, we've got a lot to talk about. What a day. Where do we start? Let's, let's maybe start with uh, Silicon Valley Bank and what this collapse actually means. Melton, I'm going to start with you. What, do you. what do you make of this collapse? Yeah, look, I think, um, so SVB has been around a long, a long time. What's really interesting, you know, Silvergate is a relatively small bank. It's about the 120th in the United States in terms of deposits under, under their management. Um, SVB, very different story. It's a bank that got its start, obviously, in Silicon Valley. Banks, the majority of funds, not just crypto funds, tech funds, startups, et cetera, um, invest in venture uh, companies. They also do something really cool. They lend against GP stakes and venture funds. So very instrumental to the broader sort of tech and growth ecosystem in the United States. Uh, 16th largest bank in America in terms of deposits, right? This is a big bank. This is a big deal. And what's insane is we are living in this world where I think after Silvergate, um, we have seen so much concern. This is not a crisis of... Uh, of, you know, 
balance sheet, although there are balance sheet issues, but what uh, SVD was doing is not abnormal for a bank, right? They were well within their regulatory capital ratios. It is a crisis of confidence across the board. And what we're looking for, right, is this is basic game theory. If there is a rumor that a bank is having issues, you, as someone who has deposits at that bank, it is in your best interest from a game theoretic perspective to pull your money out and wait until the air clears. And so what we saw with Silvergate, everyone pulled their money out at the same time, bank run, have to shut down, right? And the Fed said, we're not gonna backstop you. SCB, similar situation, crisis of confidence. People said, pull money, everyone starts pulling money massive crisis of confidence, can't raise capital, now looking to sell themselves. What we're looking at here is, is the Fed going to step in and backstop? Because this isn't some small regional bank. This isn't just a crypto bank. Technology is the backbone of the American financial system. Technology and growth stocks, right? Technology stocks are what has made America a financial powerhouse, what has made American capital markets a financial powerhouse. And so it's gonna be a really interesting story. I'm not an expert in bank regulation, although I did spend a summer working on Basel III requirements, which are sort of the rules around how much liquidity banks are required to have following the GFC, the great financial crisis. But look, this isn't an isolated incident. All of these banks were following the rules, were following regulation. Was there mismanagement possibly? But we have really not seen scenarios like this where 50, 60, 70% of deposits are getting pulled in a matter of one or two days. And no bank, I repeat this, no bank in the world has the short-term cash on hand to withstand a run like that. It's just completely not how the banking model works. So it's wild. I honestly am, I think we're living through a really interesting moment in history. And I'm deeply concerned that all it will take is a rumor to start another bank run. And there are many, many banks who have capital ratios that are far less robust than those of Silvergate and Silicon Valley banks. So it's so a really me, fascinating time. Sorry. For me, this one hit close to home. And I'll tell you why it hit close to home. Um, my brother, who sold his company to Gemini, took the proceeds of the sale and put them into Silicon Valley Bank because they were the only bank that would bank crypto-related businesses, which was them or Silvergate, and he went with Silicon Valley Bank. Now the proceeds of the sale are locked up in Silicon Valley Bank, and there's nothing he can do about it. He just can't get his business back. So imagine actually building a business, selling your business, a very successful business, keeping the money there because you're forced to keep the money there because there's no other bank that's going to look at crypto, and then having your funds effectively frozen. He phoned them today and said, can I get my money back? And they were like, just wait a second, we, we can't honor it. I do wanna just quickly show people what happened and why the bank is experiencing this. So it all comes down to maturities of bonds or, or, or T-bills. Now, for those of you who don't know how T-bill works, um, I'll show it to you here. I made a little graphic, I didn't make the graphic, but if you buy T-bill, effectively what you're buying is you're buying a certain amount. So in this case, it's a million dollars to be paid to you in 10 years time. Now, if that's trading at 1%, effectively you're getting 1% return every single year, which means you're buying it at about a 10 year, a 10% discount, which means that the price today would be $900,000. So what did the banks do? When we went into a low interest rate environment, which was around COVID, as you can see over here, we went into a very low interest rate environment, the banks couldn't find yield. And so what did they do? They thought the best place to find yield is to buy the longest maturity T-bills. So they went and bought 10-year T-bills instead of putting their money into one and two-year T-bills. So then they were buying them at 1%, which means they were paying 898000 And they were counting on the fact that consumers wouldn't, or, the, or, or investors wouldn't withdraw their cash from the bank 
until such time as the T-bill matured. Problem is now interest rates have gone up. And because interest rates have gone up to 3.7%, the value of a 10-year T-bill is 696,000 today. And so the bank is now forced to sell these 10-year T-bills and 15-year T-bills and 30-year T-bills to pay obligations because people are running for the bank today. And the problem is that every time it does that, it sells it as a huge loss. In this case, $200,000 for, for illustration purposes. And that effectively gets the bank to become bankrupt. And where we are now is that the bank has halted trading. Um, the whole banking sector is, is starting to come down. They are looking for funding. Up until now, all their fundraising efforts have been have failed. And there's a bigger concern. The bigger concern is that this contagion, this mismatch of, of duration. In other words, other, there's a concern that people are worried that investors will go to other banks and ask for their money back. And they're also stuck in long T-bills. And that could cause a global banking contagion. We did see Credit Suisse yesterday delayed their results. We saw Silvergate Bank go down because of exactly this. Now we are seeing um, uh, Silicon Valley Bank. First Republic is down, I think, was down when this tweet came out, 30%. Signature Bank was down 20%. The banking sector got absolutely decimated. Ishan, I'm keen to hear your views. Yeah. Uh, so my take on it is kind of that uh, I, I think that this is kind of a moment to really look at fractional reserve banking as a whole. I think that this is kind of the opportunity to see uh, how viable the system is, right? This system was kind of created in 10-year T-bills that banks invest in. It's kind of built for a system of like 50, 60 years ago when the uh, speed at which capital moves was a, a, at, you know, a fraction of what it does now. So in a world where money moves as fast as it does, the demand for capital is typically immediate then it starts to bring into question of the true viability of fractional reserve banking and whether that's even possible going forward, which kind of like at the end of the day, like big picture, I think this is just kind of bullish on the industry as a whole it's in the sense that, uh, you know, fractional reserves are probably not the best way to move when any kind of flood like this can create a domino effect. And, and, and just like, you know, you guys are talking about, I think we're going to see a lot more happen. I think there's not only the potential for funds or, you know, big startups where, you know, if your direct deposits are coming out of uh, you know, some of these banks, are they going to get cashed? Are they not going to get cashed, right? And then the domino effects that come out of that. So I think this is kind of a moment to look at, hey, is fractional reserve banking actually built for you know, the 2020s now? Or is it kind of a system built for the 1970s? But I don't even know if this is a pure case of fractional reserve banking collapsing, because this was just a mismanagement in the timing of, you know, you, you, you invest for a 10-year horizon and people want their money now, you're screwed. You've got to sell it at at today's prices. Um, we always said that the Fed would continue to tighten until something breaks. And then the Fed will have to stop tightening and maybe even put money back in the economy. I, I tweeted that earlier. I said, we always said the Fed would increase rates until something breaks. Do you think something's broken now, Kevin? I think it's too early to say that this is a full-blown banking crisis, but the examples of what's happened over the last 24 hours are emblematic of bigger issues that face the entire banking sector, right? So to say something's broken yet, I would say it's too early. But if we're on this path, then we are on the path to something breaking sooner rather than later. And the reason for that is in the aftermath of COVID, right, 2020, 2021, banking sector saw massive deposit increases, right? Like we know both of these banks we've been talking about, you know, saw an even bigger increase in that. To do with that capital, yes, you know, in the industry, you're talking about investing in treasury securities and MBS. Part of that is a securities portfolio, right, which has taken some pretty sizable losses. 
The other thing, and this is the longer term outlook that gets me a bit more concerned is that a lot of the rally earlier this year, right or off of the back of, you know, the end of last year, has really been a liquidity driven rally. And what I mean by that is not only did global liquidity cycle uh, peak or excuse me, bottom out in back in October, we've also seen really strong lending growth. Right. So a lot of these banks have been actually increasing their, their lending right for commercial industrial loans, even for consumer loans. And so where this starts to get troubling, right, and the impact that rate increases have now is as the positives have started to flow out of out of the banking sector, right, in search of higher yields, money market funds, uh, coming into even uh, actual treasury holdings themselves, what you've started to see is lending growth has continued to increase, right? And so what I think this, again, is a bit more emblematic of is I think this could serve as a moment where we could see, start to see a real true slowdown in credit growth which is a huge part of the liquidity equation that really drives the business cycle and drives asset prices, right? So again, to really say it's a full-blown banking crisis, but this is, this is the effect of tightening policy and, and rate hikes starting to come to fruition and actually feed its way into the financial, uh, financial system. Because what we're facing right now is a real true liquidity concern within the finance and banking sector. So, okay, that's probably a good time to maybe pivot a little bit to macro because you, you mentioned that, you know, it's the macroeconomic environment that, that caused this. Here's where we are with macro. We had interest rates, so we had in inflation starting to come down. We had the Fed increase interest rates quite aggressively. Um, we are now forecasting there's a 50% probability of a 25 basis point rate hike in, in, uh, on the 22nd of March when the Fed meets and a 50% of a 50 basis point rate hike when the Fed meet. We have seen inflation creeping up slightly in January. Maybe nothing to be alarmed about. Maybe it is something to be alarmed about. Meltem, you said that it's a shit show. You said, have you seen macro? It's a shit show. What worries you? Well, the show is only 60 minutes long. So I don't, I don't know that we can get into all of it. Look, I think... It's a, um, it's a great show, so... It's an excellent show. I agree. Um, it is excellent. And we have great, great guests to talk about this. A lot of respect for Kevin and Ishan. Um, so, so look, let's just keep it really brief. Here, here's the biggest issue, right? Wealth disparity is wider than, than ever before. You have a lot of people uh, in the United States and around the world who have no life savings. You look at, I think about this through the lens of, of myself and many other people in crypto. I'm a millennial, right? I am in my mid to late 30s, but there are a lot of people who don't own their own home. Over 50% of adults live with their parents today. That's an insane number. Why? Because they can't afford the lifestyle, right, that they were promised, that sort of capitalism and this, the system we live in promised us. So you have this huge wealth disparity that was exacerbated by the COVID crisis when 50% of the dollars that are in circulation were printed, right? So you have a huge amount of money. A lot of that money is going to people who already have a lot of money, right? And so what you have now is you have this insane dynamic where people are struggling to get by. You have a lot of people on fixed incomes, 401ks, pensions, who are not getting inflation increases. They can no longer afford the cost of living. The official rate of inflation, right? If you take the CPI print, seven, eight percent. In reality, it's much higher, right? Because most people are saying when they're going to the grocery store, they're spending double what they used to spend for their family. So you have this fundamental issue where inflation is rampant and inflation is not going to get fixed, right? The issue is it's structural and it's systemic in nature. And the area where this is most apparent is in energy, right? If we look at energy costs uh, during the COVID crisis, energy costs came down a bit because obviously demand went down. 
The China lockdowns over the last six months have also contributed to lower energy demand. But global energy demand, societies that are technologically advanced consume a lot of energy. Energy production, by the way, is going down. The US used to be energy independent. Shale production is on a major decline this year. It's tracking major declines going forward. I came from the energy industry, right? So I'm very passionate about the role that energy plays in our modern economy. And we have an administration who is completely batshit insane when it comes to the economics of energy and how foundational they are to the US economy and the petrodollar complex. So when you take all of these things together, I think we're living in an unprecedented era of political and social unrest, right? That is fueled by extreme wealth disparity and the inability for most people to live a quality of life, right? That is consistent with what one might expect. And I think this is only going to increase, right? We see a lot of tension, we see misinformation, we see the rise of people just completely choosing to drop out of the system. And so I think these factors taken together more so than like, we could sit here and talk about macroeconomics and talk about all the issues with the federal deficit, which by the way, at 5% uh, on, on treasuries, right? Like, we can't afford to service the U.S.'s debt. We can't afford to service Medicare. We can't afford to social, service Social Security. The birth rate is declining. There's not enough replacement workers coming in to support this huge unfunded liability that is benefits for retired workers and that is benefits for, for our society. And so you have all of these fundamental structural and systemic factors that are just so profound and so challenging to resolve. And everyone loves to find these little issues to, to pick on, right? But these are really broad scale systemic issues. The solutions we're seeing proposed are not broad scale systemic reform solutions. They are tiny little band-aids on huge gaping bullet holes that have existed for a long, long time that have only accelerated and been exacerbated since the start of COVID. And so what I'm deeply concerned about, like we're gonna see massive generational war, right? And that generational battle is already starting. Like my generation is working really hard. I'm not gonna spend 50 to 60% of my income in the form of taxes to support the boomers who've enjoyed, by the way, the greatest era of wealth creation of any, any demographic in history, right? So there's these fundamental rifts in our society um, that are being fueled by all of this systemic and structural risk. And it's, it's just fundamentally unsustainable. Now, what's the bright side? Where's the silver lining? We as humans have incredible ingenuity, right? And technology is a great way to start to resolve some of these problems. The issue we have is we have an administration, we live in a country where both the left and the right are resistant to innovation. They're resistant to technology and they wanna coerce and control and build a larger bureaucratic state to extract more wealth from private citizens. So like rant over, but it's deeply political, it's, it's social in nature. And I think it's not just about macro, it's about the fact that we are sitting on a social and political powder keg and it is at some point going to explode and i am very scared to think about what the results might be but the current structure that we have is not going to persist and um you know again this is why i'm so excited to be in crypto this is why i'm excited about what we're doing in crypto it's not the solution but it's a, a part of the solution and the fact that so many of us are choosing to opt out like all of these banks failing i sleep well at night personally you know why because I self-custody my crypto. We're going to talk about that because uh, we, we've, we opted out because we're getting into crypto, but it feels like this Operation Choke Point is designed 
to destroy crypto. And we're going to spend some time talking about that in a sec. I think we've all got really strong views around Operation Chokepoint and how real it is. And I'm going to show you some, some stats and some, some stuff. Um, Ishan, I want to just ask you, what do you think? What do you think Powell does now? What's, what's the best move for Powell? Does he keep increasing rates aggressively, knowing that the banks are starting to fail, knowing that the U.S. can't service its debt, knowing that, I mean, there's a whole list of, of things that are happening. What, what's, what's the move here? Yeah. So, so first off, uh, Melton, whenever you're ready to run on a uh, pro-tech platform uh, for president, uh, I, will run your, uh, <laughs> I will run your campaign for you. Um, second thing, I, I wanted to hit on one of the things she mentioned there, which is that, you know, this like looming kind of energy, big picture, like all the things that are kind of getting destroyed at the same time. I think like the solve for that typically, like some of these inflation, inflationary issues, some of these energy issues is typically like, you know, moving further out in the production possibility curve, right? Like the basic, you know, uh, curve that they teach you in any economic class, right? And well, how does that happen? That happens through technology, right? Which kind of bringing it back is now coming back to the Silicon Valley Bank issue is that is tech really affected? How badly is tech affected by this, right? If, if there's now a huge liquidity crunch, capital crunch, or a lot of these, uh, you know, uh, large institutions, funds, uh, projects start to not have the liquidity or the cash that they thought that they had, that could start to have further issues. But kind of getting back to your point, Rand, about, um, you know, I'm not going to sit here and act like I'm a macroeconomist, like I'm just, a, you know, a little DeFi degen. Um, so I, I'm not going to worry about too much uh, about the big picture stuff. But I mean, uh, as far, you know, I, I think this is the first sign of potentially things breaking. I, I don't necessarily think it's true, but if we start to see the domino, then yeah, I think rates will start to scale back. Um, and I, I think like there's a larger issue of like how sustainable are like 5% interest rates, right? Like, can we keep paying this debt? Like, uh, you know, so there's like this balance between like, yes, we need high interest to bring down inflation, but are we going to be able to actually pay those debts in the future, right? Mm, Kev, what do you think? Yeah, I'm going to tie a couple of these threads together because I very much agree with um, with what everyone's saying. I think one on the Fed point, I think they're going to continue to keep going because the, the harsh reality is that when you get inflation to these levels, really the best antidote for it is a recession, right? Because you have to, you have to hit the demand side um, because eventually at, that, at a certain point, if demand falls far enough, you simply can't sell things at higher prices because there is a demand for it, right? So one... And this has been the Fed's game plan the whole time, right, is trying to essentially force the economy into some type of recessionary period, trying to navigate a soft landing, which is extremely difficult and a really, really tough needle of thread. But the reason why that's um, a concern and tying a couple of these threads together is if we do wind up seeing a real economic downturn, a lot of these problems that we're talking about actually potentially get exacerbated, right? If you have a recession, you see tendency deficits spike quite considerably, right, at a time in which we're already struggling, we'll continue to struggle to Meltem's point to fund even the interest on the amount of US federal debt that we have today, right? We've got something like 10 trillion in US treasuries that are gonna to need to be rolled over in the next 24 months, right? So where rates wind up in the next 12 to 18 months is actually extremely important for you know what the expected potential net interest outlays of that is. So that's number one. Um, the second big point, and one that I think Meltem hit the nail on the head with is, we do have this system where the common mantra of the rich get richer is so true because the not so secret to wealth creation, right? And really obtaining wealth over time is to own things, right? It's ownership, it's owning assets. But at a time in which those assets are too expensive for the average person to actually go out and acquire and get their hands on, you create the system where only the wealthier can afford to actually accumulate that type of wealth, right? And this is where longer term, 
I very much agree that, you know, crypto, maybe it's not the perfect silver bullet, you know, solution for this. But I do think a lot of what we're doing here can actually help to narrow that economic inequality gap because we're providing more ownership opportunities to a, lot, a much wider swath of people who can optimize or use things that they have read, resources readily available to them, right? Like their time, for example, right? Or their, or their ability to work on certain things. So it's a number of different things here. But in the short term, I mean, I think the Fed keeps going, like I said, because they have to. This is actually what they kind of want to see because then it slows credit growth it slows potentially demand it brings inflation down like these are the thing this is the read-through of what tighter policy looks like wow scary at the same time you all said this that the the answer lies in technology Meltem, you mentioned that you know you both both parties are technology resistant we are at the forefront of technology and i think we're experiencing this resistance firsthand specifically a lot more since the ftx collapse we've got gary gensler pretty much declaring war on anything that's not Bitcoin. And I think he's doing that because he knows that he can't regulate Bitcoin because that's in, under the CFTC or whoever, whoever else regulates it. But he can regulate everything else. And he may even be able to regulate in, uh, Ethereum since it moved to proof of stake. So it's not the same proof of work status quo. Now you've got what we've called Operation Choke Point, which is designed to take away the ability of new money to come onto the crypto ecosystem. You had Signature Bank collapse, Signature Bank, um, sorry, you had, yeah, so Signature Bank, sorry, what's the bank? Silvergate. Silvergate Bank collapsed. Um, it uh, had the Silvergate exchange network, which was effectively the way that exchanges used to move money around. They're gone. Signature Bank has said that they're only going to allow $100,000 plus with Binance, and they are starting to limit their crypto deposits. Silicon Valley Bank um, is where it is now. Are you guys starting to worry that, that quite soon there's going to be very few ways to get money onto the crypto ecosystem because I'm starting to worry because if we want prices to go up and adoption to take place, whatever our, our objectives are, we need to make sure that people can get money onto the ecosystems. And we keep getting these announcements. Crypto.com can't take in US dollar deposits anymore. Binance suspended US dollar deposits via bank transfer, according to a company announcement. Uh, Silvergate, we spoke about. We got unconfirmed reports, which were then... Um, disputed by Gemini where they said that that you know JP Morgan they'd lost their JP Morgan banking partner. Like are you guys yeah. I'm starting to and go, how are we but, gonna get money but, into the ecosystem? Okay, but but Rand, hold on. I want to just quickly touch on this. Okay, so number one, Operation Choke Point has been around for a long time. If you just Wikipedia Operation Choke Point, a lot of great detail there. Also huge shout out to Silvergate. I've known Alan and the team for a number of years. Back in 2015 at DCG, no one would bank our portfolio companies. Alan was excited about Bitcoin. He got it. Um, he started investing a little bit in the space and Silvergate really became the first bank that was willing to touch crypto companies. Instead of having auditors in their office every 12 to 24 months, they had auditors in their office every six months, right? And Operation Choke Point is not a formal mandate, right? It's an informal mandate to make life as difficult as possible for banks who are engaged in banking industries that are seen as un unsavory. Uh, that's pornography, that's guns and munitions, that's fireworks, it's crypto, it's a lot of different things. Online gambling. Uh, by the way, all of those industries are the industries that drive innovation on the internet. Why? For precisely this reason, because no one will bank them and no one will serve them. 
And so we have to build alternate pathways. So, so that's number one. So huge shout out to Silvergate because the business they built was really hard to build and they were willing to do something that no one else was willing to do. I think it's really it's sad what's happened to them. Obviously there are a number of different reasons for it, but I just want to say like the amount of effort that went into building that business and the leap of faith that that, that team had to take was massive. And I think people underestimate how challenging it is um, even for banks today. The second okay. thing I just want to say, where the regulation stuff gets interesting, here's the fact about crypto. And I said this five years ago in my testimony in Congress when we were talking about Libra, right, which feels like a lifetime ago. You cannot stop crypto. You cannot stop it. Why? It does not have a physical jurisdiction. It doesn't have a CEO. It doesn't have a corporation behind it. You cannot stop it. The only thing you can do is slow it down. Our government is about coercion and control. They don't want consumers to have access to encryption. They don't want consumers to have access to money without them knowing exactly what's happening. Every transaction that touches the Fed system, which is basically all dollar denominated transactions at some point touch the Fed system, are surveilled and monitored, right? This is about control. And so the challenge here is try as they might, we cannot put crypto back in the box. You can't regulate it out of existence. What I always like to say is they can't put all of us in jail. They can try, but they simply cannot. And so the question is, where do you go from here? You try to tax it, right? You try to kind of shove it into a box, but you can't control it. And the thing is, America, right, is not the world. The world is a very large place. And so America's loss will be someone else's gain, whether that's Dubai, Singapore, Hong Kong, somewhere else. At the end of the day, the world's much bigger than just the United States. And again, coercion and control work up to a certain point. But technology has this beautiful way. You know, it's like a, a wave. It just sort of washes over everything. So you can fight it and fight it. But change in progress is inevitable. And I think the movement that was started 13 years ago, it's it's unstoppable. We can slow it down, but it can't be stopped. It's unstoppable. But in, in, the, in the U.S., pretty soon you're not going to be able to get any money onto crypto exchanges. I mean, if, if these guys start losing their banking partners at the rate that they're going, it's going to be very difficult to get money onto the crypto ecosystem. That's, I, I mean, mean but how did we do it? How did we do it a decade ago, right? There was no way to get money into crypto. You know what you did? You used local Bitcoins, you used Craigslist, you gave someone cash and they sent you USDC. Like, is it convenient? No. Will it severely slow the growth of the system? Yes. But again, innovation, human progress. I think we're an incredibly creative industry. We react extremely well to all the things that have been thrown at us. So I do believe, you know, you can slow it down, but where there's a will, there is a way. And frankly, this industry is too big. There's too much money at stake for us to not find a way. People will find a way. Kevin, what do you think? Are you, are you worried that, that they're squeezing the on-ramps and off-ramps? I think um, in the short term, we've been saying that I think the biggest risk to crypto this year, heading into this year was going to be access to funding, right? And that's across in multiple, multiple different avenues, right? Both on the call it equity investment side of things, right? You're kind of early stage venture, but also now as we're seeing play out this week, actual access to banking services, right? So in the short term, is this, is this good, right? If you're just looking from a market's perspective, no, it's not great. Longer term though, I very much agree with Meltman. To be honest with you, the U.S. is in my opinion, shooting itself in the foot, because if we're trying to tie a lot of these threads we've been talking about together, right? High deficits. Part of the reason is we have long-term economic outlook for growth in the U.S. is only declining, right? Because of aging demographics, because of the massive debt burdens we have in the public and private sectors. And so if you're the U.S., what you actually want to be doing to pull yourself out of that hole is investing and promoting innovation, right? Because the taxing point's a really good one, right? What you're seeing is and this has become even more correlated over the last really kind of 10 to 15 years is household net worth. When that increases, you tend to see more taxes for the government, right? Which helps you to fund all these different programs we've been talking about. 
crypto is going to create continue to create right if you think about this on a five to ten year time horizon an immense amount of wealth for a lot of different people right and if you're able to i sit here in new york right i'm in the u.s i didn't i didn't leave i i pay taxes right it's not it's not doesn't tickle it hurts but i'm willing to do that right and i'm because i'm willing to be here in new york this is where i want to be there's a lot of people i think who feel similarly or would be willing to do that if there was more clarity around this and if you think about the potential tax revenue you'd get from again investing in innovation and this is we're talking about crypto here but this applies to a lot of different you know industries and sectors uh, across the high growth tech space that is what the us should be really prioritizing and focusing on rather than hindering or trying to choke off this system because what you're going to do is you're just pushing I, innovation and talent I elsewhere agree. I agree, but they're not doing it. I mean, you've got, yeah. they got them. It's, it's a short-term risk. To answer your point more directly, that access to funding is a very, very immediate term risk for the space. Because again, regardless of what we want to say, we think policymakers should do. What they're doing is obviously very different. And that access to funding, right? Unless that picks up because you have a lot of companies and, and projects that raised 2020, 2021, they're now going to have to come back and already starting to come back to the market for funding. If that funding is not there, it's going to slow. It's either going to have projects wind down or it's going to slow, you know, the adoption, the growth of this industry for, for sure. I look at this and I think to myself, Mount Cox, 140,000 Bitcoin are about to get released. Shanghai, $30 billion worth of ETH is about to get released and it's going to become liquid and it wasn't liquid. We need a way to absorb that liquidity. And now we're saying we need a way to absorb the liquidity, but we're not going to get any support from, the U from U.S. investors because or we're going to get very little support from U.S. investors because, hey, your on-ramps and off-ramps are closed. And the problem is that the international exchanges are also worried because it, with U.S. dollar denominated anything, and so they're not able to do anything U.S. dollar denominated. And when I look at that, I'm, I'm kind of going, well, someone show me the bull case. Someone... someone Help me understand what the bull case is with probably the biggest liquidity ev events in crypto hitting us in the next couple of months. And oh, by the way, we've taken away your liquidity. There's no, you're gonna, it's gonna be a lot harder to get money in to buy this all up. I don't know, to me, it doesn't end well. Ishan, what do you think? I, I think you hit it right on the nail with uh, worrying about the Mt. Gox Bitcoin and Shanghai. I think that's kind of the biggest short term. Uh, risk on the table right now. There's that's a lot of liquidity. 140k Bitcoin, 30 billion in ETH coming. I don't think all of that's going to dump, but that's a very large risk, especially amongst everything happening. Um, I think the two things that I'm kind of keeping an eye out for right now is one. I think um, the U.S. is kind of um, you know not appreciating its presence as the reserve currency of the entire industry, and being that you know almost all stable coins are USD based. I think that that's an area where they have this massive advantage, but I think uh, I'm, I'm keeping a very close eye on uh, other stable coins and seeing other uh, pegged assets growth. Um, so like, you know, obviously, you know, China CBDC, but also more so just like some of these, you know, uh, Southeast Asian uh, stable coin companies that are popping up. Um, so that's something I'm keeping an eye out on because it's kind of just this known idea that uh, everything is going to be, uh, you know, in the, uh, you know, back in the US dollar and it's going to be USDT and USDC. I think that's potentially at risk. And then the other thing I'm looking at is Coinbase, right? Like they have consistently ah. been the knight in shining armor uh, for the past decade. And, you know, I, I uh, you know, I don't know if you want to bring it up, but the picture of, uh, of, of Brian Johnson, uh, you know, with everyone, uh, Brian Armstrong, sorry, uh, with everybody at the at the dinner table in New York, you know, all the, the heaviest hitters. Um, uh, and and uh, so I, I, don't know, 
I did a whole show this week saying that for me, the best bet in crypto right now is Coinbase. Why? They're absolutely well-funded. From a regulatory point of view, they've got the highest chance of success because they're well-funded and they can challenge the SEC. They can't be bullied by the SEC. They also have enough funding and enough good partners to make it through a bear market or whatever regulatory attacks happen. They are well-diversified in crypto. They're in staking. They're in wallets. They're in the exchange business. They're in the NFT marketplace business. And the list goes on and on and on. Um, access to liquidity, in other words, access to capital, it, they listed on a, on a normal stock market. I'm looking at this and I'm going, hold on, Coinbase. That's for me like a no-brainer at the moment. It's like, just by, you know, if you're worried about crypto, you think it's going to survive, but you, you're worried about regulation. You're worried about length of bear market. You're worried about, just buy Coinbase. It basically covers all the, all the bases. But, but Ryan, look at their balance sheet and look at their income statement. It's not, okay. it's not a beautiful picture. I'm, I'm a big fan of Coinbase. I think they're doing a lot for the industry. I also think the ability for Coinbase to become an on-chain bank is like the opportunity, right? I think that's the direction they're headed with, with base, which I think is brilliant because they can do a bunch of stuff in a non-custodial manner. But um, again, right, this is where like boring Meltem comes out, corporate finance 101. There are only three things that matter when you run a business, your balance sheet, your income statement, and your cash flow. Coinbase is sort of in a precarious cash position. They're burning a lot of capital, posting quarter after quarter of losses. And one of the challenges, frankly, of running a crypto business, right, is your profits, right, are sort of directly correlated. They have a beta of one to the overall crypto market cap. There are very few businesses that have been able to, to build a, a revenue model, right, that isn't completely tethered to the cyclicality of the broader crypto market. And so while I'm with you that I think Coinbase has an incredible opportunity, had an incredible trajectory, they're down, you know, 85% from their highs in November 21. Um, and I think they, they're in a tough position when it comes to their balance sheet and their cash flow. So I would just, again, just carefully look at the numbers, uh, you know, Q, Q4, year end reporting just came out. Um, when they report Q1, it'll be interesting to see if enterprise or software services like this SaaS model they're moving towards is driving more of the revenue, but they've got some tough headwinds when it comes to just the fundamentals of, of their business model and their cash position. So sorry, not okay. to be the doomer, but you know, these are important mm -hmm. things. We care about these things. We like these things. Val valua valuations <laughs> matter. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're learning that the hard way. I look at some of the deals I did and I'm like, yikes, I, I'm not smart. That's okay, but I'm not very smart. <laughs> So you also get that 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 feeling of what the fuck was I thinking in the bull market? You you, you do get that, right? <laughs> so I'm looking at the Coinbase market cap, $11, 12000000000 billion. I don't know. I mean, you, you, you probably bring up some good points in terms of balance sheet. I think that they have an ability to raise capital. They have the best ability to raise capital in the market because they are so well regulated. They're not perfect, but they are so well regulated. They're so well diversified across all narratives of crypto. I think if anybody could raise money and there would be people putting money into it, I think Coinbase is probably the best bet. I don't know if anyone would give KuCoin money now with the New York Attorney General against them. I think, I mean, CZ is well capitalized, but, you know, I think it's, there's a risk there. And I don't know, Coinbase just seems like, a, like a, a nice, lazy, passive investment. If you want to be in crypto, but you're worried and you want to be passive, well, just put your money into Coinbase. And let, let but Ren, there are no there are no passive investments in this market. I just want to disabuse everyone of the notion that there are great lazy investments that are sure things because, you know, uh, what's his name? Kevin O'Leary, Mr. Wonderful, went on TV less than a month ago saying SCD was his biggest pick. Look where we are today. So, you know, easy button doesn't exist investing. Him, him and Jim Kramer in the same boat. <laughs>
Poor guy, poor guy. In fact, actually, I, I, I got the Jim Cramer thing. I think, let me try and find it for the audience. I'm, I've got it here. So this is, you know, when Jim Cramer opens his mouth, it's a problem. Yeah, let, let me play it for you guys. The ninth best performer year to date is SBB Financial. Don't you want? This company's a merchant bank with a deposit base that Wall Street had been mistakenly concerned about. SBB is the old Silicon Valley Bank. Recently bought one of our favorite research firms, Buffett Nathanson, and it's become less dependent upon private equity and venture capitalist offerings. Wait a second. Those dried up last year, they could come back. Yes, some of them come back here with a stock directly affects an oversold position. Stock was the fourth worst performer in 2022. I think the fears were not justified. It's a very compelling situation. And by the way, long-term private equity and venture capital, they're not going away. Being the banker to these invest, immense pools of capital has always been a very good business. Stock's still cheap. Now, you have to remember that a stock that falls 66%, like SVB Financial did last year, it takes it a lot more to recover. After losing two-thirds of your value, you need a 200% gain to get back to even. This is arithmetic. Some people call it geometry. So you could argue SVB's nearly 40% rally this year is barely a drop in the bucket. And that's how I want you to think it. I think it's they also a good example. They got the Jim Cramer curse. That's, I mean, that's really what happened to the bank. They got, they got the Jim Cramer curse. Melton, um, okay, so you're not buying Coinbase. Are you buying anything? I, I, Are you I have I have Coinbase in my portfolio. I bought it, you know, at a slightly higher price. Um, and then I have some stock from a, a tr acquisition transaction as well. And look, I'm a I'm a holder there, but am I adding to my position? Um, I want to see how Q1 goes for them and where revenues are, are coming from. Um, yeah, but look, I just again, I think in crypto, especially, um, I see a lot of bad advice out there. People like, oh, mortgage your house and buy bitcoin like do at like sell your car and buy like don't don't do those things people like be a little that is what gets it. you in trouble yeah that's it it's um so, what are you so cringe are you what am I are buying? you looking are you looking at the market now and going it's time to start nibbling it feels to me like it's peak fud out there and we know that peak fud usually means it's a great time to buy Everyone's calling this market down. I saw this tweet. It's actually from one of our researchers. It says, Mt. Cox, 140,000 Bitcoin overhang, East Shanghai upgrade, Silvergate liquidation, Signature Bank uh, being next, potentially Biden's wants to, Biden wants to tax electricity used to mine crypto, capital gains increases in the US, inflation, Voyager liquidating assets, KuCoin sued by the New York Attorney General. Okay, but, but, like but, but hold on, right? On that list, right? First of all, increase in capital gains, never going to happen. Biden administration talking point, Dems love it, never going to pass, not in a million years. Uh, electricity taxes for Bitcoin mining, never going to happen. We don't have an electricity police. Electricity is controlled by something called the market, supply and demand. If you're willing to pay for it, you get the power. That's how it's always worked. That's dead in the water. New York AG can sue KuCoin, Binance, whoever they want. They're all going to settle, right? Look at... Bitmax, right? Slap on the wrist, settled for 100 million, boom, walk away. So like all of these things, yes, they're great at generating headlines. They're great at giving Elizabeth Warren and like whoever else their little talking points and doing little victory laps. Are they actually consequential? No. EOS raised $4 billion in a crowd sale, walked away with a $24 million fine. Like okay, so these things are the inconsequential. This all optics. What actually matters, right? is where are inflows going to come from? So every week at CoinShares, we publish a report on inflows and outflows for crypto structured products, because that's what we can track. That's where we have the data. Um, right now for the year, we're at about a quarter of a billion dollars of net inflows into crypto structured products. Where are those inflows coming from? 
2021 was fueled by retail and crypto funds, right? Crypto funds raised over $33 billion. So right now there's a big game of musical chairs going on. And that $1 trillion of market cap people like to talk about, that's not actual market cap because you can't actually liquidate any of those coins, right? And we learned that with FTT, a lot of that's monopoly money. So the question is, where are the big inflows coming from? Retail's not touching crypto. Crypto funds can keep playing musical chairs, but they're getting concerned about dry powder because are they going to be able to raise another fund TD, not in this environment? Where are the inflows going to come from? That is my question. And if we look at Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin every day emissions, right? Roughly $9 million of Bitcoin mined every day. Someone every day for the Bitcoin price to stay where it is needs to buy $9 million of Bitcoin. And same with Ethereum, right? Right now, Ethereum is sort of flat to deflationary. If we look at some of these other protocols, you need consistent new inflows of money to drive price higher. So the question is always, 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 what is sentiment? Where does the sentiment sit? How does that sentiment materialize into inflows? Because the inflows are what drives price. And so my question is, who is buying and who is buying in size? Right now, in the next six to 12 months, I don't see any major financial institution, family offices, large pools of capital buying in size. That's the reality. The damage, the reputational damage of FTX, the reputational damage of what has happened over the last 18 months, like the excesses of this industry, which blow my mind. And I've been doing this for almost a decade. They blew my fucking mind, Ran. It's insane, right? So I think it's going to take a while for that to wash out. It will be back. But the question is, where is the money going to come from? And right now, I just don't have a clear answer. Sean, Kevin, maybe you see some big buyers or inflows or pockets of inflows that I'm not seeing. But I don't think right now there is a lot of demand that is being unmet. And I just don't see any really large inflows materializing um, from from anywhere. Yeah, I think I think short term. Um, yeah, like especially with Mt. Gox and, and Shanghai, I'm pretty bearish. Uh, but, you know, as, as far as inflows, like the places that I keep a very close ear to the ground on and, and, and markets that I watch very closely are, are Asia. Um, so mostly like Southeast Asia, but also South Asia, right? India, obviously, I, I've talked about this on the channel. I'm like incredibly bullish on the India crypto seed. Um, so there is, you know, like 2 billion people there that have a decent amount of cash. Um, so not to say that, you know, they're going to come and save the day for us, but a place where I'm keeping a close eye on as far as potential for markets to jump in another area. And like kind of the last thing that I wanted to hit was uh, two things that I'm keeping a pretty close eye on. And I'd love to get your take on this as well, Meltem, is... Uh, one Paxos, two circle, um, you know, so yeah, I, I already see you shaking your head, right? I, I'm already kind of worried, you know, Paxos has stopped minting BUSD. They're the issuers of BUSD and then circle, right? That's kind of the next uh, opportunity for a major, major kind of like flip of the market um, where, you know, if something happens there, you know, the government says stop issuing or something like that. Obviously we know that they're overcapitalized uh, to a certain extent. So, uh, you know, it's, I, I don't think like a massive USDC DPEG is going to happen, but, you know, uh, am I a little worried about holding, you know, being in a, a vast majority of stables and holding all of those tables in USDC? Yeah, I'm a little worried. I might diversify a little bit. Wow. Okay. Melton, what do you think? Paxos safe? Uh, so look, I think these are great points. I think Paxos concerned, uh, also concerned about um, Anchorage and other custodians that got licenses from the OCC under Brian Brooks's tenure there. Um, I think the OCC is now looking at pulling some of those back. So again, like throttling access and connectivity to the traditional banking system and the dollar system, I think is, is going to be rough. Um, not as concerned about Circle, why Circle um, has BlackRock managing their assets for them. 
huge pool of capital for BlackRock. You know, it's a it's a great business. And BlackRock, you know, was heavily involved in getting this administration elected. So I think Circle has some nice insurance there in that relationship with BlackRock, right? Um, and so, yeah, it's uh, I'm not concerned about Circle. I do think stable coins are under assault. Ultimately, where I think this leads, by the way, is what this administration wants is they want a name and a social security number associated with every crypto wallet, right? Because they want to know who you are. And they've been doing this for years, right? Like if you're in crypto and you touch the United States of America at any point, the government knows who you are. They're tracking you. They're monitoring you. They want to keep an eye on you. But this is all about coercion and, and control. Um, so I think that's going to be the trend. I think anyone who does get a banking license, it's going to come with severe KYC, AML, know your customers sort of rules, right? Because um, they, they want to track, they want to control, they want to figure out where people are, what they're doing. Um, and if there's taxes to be had, if there's fines to be levied, um, if there's coercion to be had, they're going to they're gonna go for it. So in short, not worried about Circle. They're in bed with the right people, worried about Paxos. Um, and then I think on the custodian side, definitely going to be challenges for institutions that got OCC Worried about Tether? Worried about Tether at all? I mean, we've been around for a long no. time. We, no. No. Kevin, what do you think? concerns about Tether. <laughs> no, I'm, I, I won't even, I think Melton covered, I won't even weigh on that. But I'll try and end this on a more bullish note if we can find one. I agree with the point on inflows, especially into the, let's say, the broader crypto ecosystem, right? But what I could see is capital consolidating or flowing into certain pockets of the market. And I think of something like ETH. I think ETH, especially at these levels, starts to look a lot more attractive to a lot of people because to be honest, I think a lot of the concerns over Shanghai are pretty overblown um, because when you actually dig into the numbers, right? 30 billion is the, the number that gets the headlines. But when you actually dig into the amount that um, would be unlocked immediately for partial withdrawals and our team just put out a really great report on this, it breaks all this down. Um, our base case is actually more around potentially even 10 to 15% eventually getting you know on stage or potentially as supply coming to market. Um, and what this really serves as is more of a de-risking event of sorts, right? Where now you have a lot more certainty around, you know, what if you wanted to come in and stake or you want to use some type of liquid staking uh, protocol, right? And hold that token. A lot of people wanted liquidity from the restate could have gotten it, right? But majority of people at this point. And so while you do have certain pockets of um, those types of stakers that could unlock and could um, bring that supply to market at a time in which market depth is shallow, right? Which could cause a lot of volatility. I think it's going to be more short-term volatility potentially weighing on price, but longer term is, is a lot more, a lot more bullish for free long-term because it's going to bring in more people and it's going to increase the amount of ETH that's staked. Okay. Are you buying? Are you starting to buy? I'm nibbling. I'm nibbling. Under, under 20,000. Ishan, your, your, your Canto is, I think, back at 25 cents. I think the last time that we spoke, it was it was it was somewhere around there as well. Are you guys actually degening, or is it not the time to start degening? Meltem, I know you're you're an absolute degen. Uh, for those, of, there's a lot of people asking for Meltem's Twitter in in the chat. So there it is. It's at Melt underscore Dem. Um, that's her that's her profile. She's an absolute degen. Here we go. I mean, it's a I don't great know follow. Are you guys are, are you guys starting to degen yet? Is it, is it degen time, or is it not degen time yet? Okay, hear me out. I'm longing dog coins. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's out. your answer. Look, okay, so okay, so here's the thing, right? Um, so much of crypto is driven by this like techno babble vaporware narrative, and I'm just gonna go ahead and say it because like 
I don't know if you saw today, like Hedera Hashgraph was halted, right? It's, it's a centralized database. They just flipped a switch and it's like, okay, the network's off. Like a lot of this stuff is not yet living up to the promise of like what's been articulated. Bitcoin 100% lives up to the promise, right? Which is a very simple promise. Ethereum, really like excited about what's happening with L2's app chains. I think Ethereum's super vibrant, super robust, has some technical challenges around like complexity landscape, but I think super excited about the Ethereum ecosystem. Literally everything else, TBD. Utilization's really low. There's a lot of supply. There's not really a lot of natural demand yet. It's not saying that won't develop, but again, like, it's a very simple equation, inflows and outflows, supply and demand, a lot of supply, a lot of coins out there. They're in the hands of people who are investing for financial interest, right? Not a lot of demand out there from people who actually have a consumptive function for these things. So again, it's not enough, but I think there's a lot of work to be done to sort of prove that hypothesis. And until then, we're all playing money musical chairs, which is fine. That's how the venture ecosystem works too. All good. But the part we ignore is mimetic desire is the most powerful thing on planet Earth, right? We want things that appeal to us that other people have. And I think dog coins, like hear me out, I'm going to sound crazy. Dog coins fill a really important part of this mimetic desire that we have as humans, right? There's no roadmap. There's no utility. It's why I love crypto dick butts. No roadmap, no utility, no promises. It's a little picture of a, a little butt with a little dick on it. It's funny, makes you laugh. Same thing with dog coins. There's no roadmap. There's no real utility. They're coins named after dogs. They just ride the markets, right? They are pure degen coins, supply, demand. Every market cycle, the dog coins pump the hardest. I'm going to go ahead and memes. I can't believe right. that I'm sitting there with one of the in investors that I respect and have respected the most in crypto since 2016. And she's telling me that the thing that she's buying is dog coins. I but when the market starts again, Ran, right, it is going to start with stuff like dog coins. And here's why. When people start moving out on the risk curve, they start buying this mimetic stuff, right? Like, look at the boom of NFTs. A lot of that was fueled by mimetic desire, right? It wasn't fueled by this idea of utility or some techno narrative, right, around growth. It was pure mimetic degenning. And so I think the indicators of a bull market typically start in these assets that feel like jokes. And by and large, I view dog coins like meme PFPs, I view them as a barometer for sentiment, right? And that sounds a little crazy, but they are usually a very healthy indicator of more broadly where people are feeling they want to be on the risk spectrum. So if we see people starting to buy dog coins and meme PFPs and like this dog shit stuff again, really what that's telling us is people are feeling comfortable buying risk again. And also, yeah, guys, just, that's, it's an, that's an, it's an important me. point though, because like in a speculative market, like people underestimate how powerful momentum and reflexivity is in this market. And so, yeah, you could be saying we're talking, you're talking about dog coins, but it's the read through of what that means in terms of risk appetite that potentially can, again, lead to outperformance for a lot of these like higher beta plays, right? On things that actually potentially longer term could have, you know, real value. Most importantly, okay. it's not just dog coins; it's also dick butts. Uh, let, let's let's make sure we get that in there. Um, and yep. and Meltem is. I, I see a fellow appreciator of art and culture and math here. We do like culture. I think we need another uh, Sunday service this week. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, I, I think like Meltem is definitely a better investor than me. So like, I, I think you know her 
that the 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 shitcoin take is probably better than my take. But I think if I were to get a little more nuanced, I think the things that I'm looking at right now are uh, DApps that uh, are unlocked or or uh, are create or are essentially unlocked by the lack of banking. So like typically people use banking to get access to trading, right? So I'm not looking at I'm now looking at kind of non-custodial trading dApps, right? So like I know I've talked about this before, like full disclosure, I'm a core contributor at Gains Network, but things that allow you to do fintech activities or traditional financial activities, but do them on-chain non-custodially are the things that I'm looking at as this liquidity crunch and this banking thing keeps going. So, you know, I, I need to go and uh, jump a, drop a bunch of money from my bank account into Coinbase in order to trade. I can just take my USDC from my wallet you know, turn it into die, go to gains or some of the other competitors in the market and go trade non-custodial. So things that uh, like the but, equivalents. So wait, Ishan, I want to challenge you on that. Why do I need a coin for those things, right? Like I think what Coinbase is doing with base where fees are going to be denominated in USDC or ETH make a lot of sense. But like, why do I need a coin for DeFi? That's one of the things I'm struggling to understand with a lot of these DeFi plays. Like, why can't I just accrue protocol revenues in USDC or ETH? Why do I need a new token? So, so that, that that's what happens in gains, right? So, a lot the, the protocol revenue that happens is sent back to die holders, right? Instead of USDC, it's die, right? So, they don't um, so the, the a portion of the revenue goes to there, a portion of the revenue goes to GNS stakers, right? And that's where that revenue and that that APY comes from. And then also, once that die pool is over collateralized, right? Once it hits that 110, 120, 130 percent collateralization ratio, then those that uh, that extra die goes back into buying back and burning GNS. So the the uh, you know one of the few cases where that token actually does have a legit function because that function is like revenue going back to holders. So instead of revenue from Coinbase going back into you know uh, everyone's pockets over there or hiring the million employees that they have or anything like that, it just goes straight back into the users' pockets or liquidity providers' pockets. So that is like an actual usable scenario that I think. But I totally agree with you. Like ninety percent of it, total dog shit. But I think this is the scenario where you can get value accrual and it's like investing in the protocol. All right, listen, guys, on that note, we have to leave it for today. We've gone way over time. I respect your time. Much love from me. Much love from the Banter fam. Uh, Melton, they love you. They love all of you guys. Melton's Twitter, and we'll put Melton's Instagram there as well. But all the Twitters are below. Um, yeah, and you can find No Instagram, Ran. My Instagram's private. Ah, okay, Instagram's private, sorry. Instagram's I'm keeping private. my private life private. I love you guys. I share a lot on the internet. But, you know, what happens in my home is going to stay in my home. Love <laughs> much love guys much love for the banter fam uh stay stay with me we've got a couple of things to talk about i do see some news that has just come out let's quickly get, go to it it says silvergate has 15 billion sorry silvergate silicon valley bank has 15 billion in cash 25 billion in newly repositioned short dated securities 73 billion in off balance sheet sweep accounts and repo funds that can be brought on balance sheet and 65 billion in borrowing capacity. This totals 180 billion in liquidity relative to 165 billion deposits. They are saying that Silvergate may actually be um, uh, um, solvent, which is great. I am watching the markets. There, there are some interesting things happening on the markets right now. So for one, we do have the Dixie. Look at the Dixie. We haven't seen a move like this in the Dixie for a long time, but the Dixie is down 1% back under the trend line. We've got the probabilities of a 50 basis point rate hike diminishing while we were on the show. Um, let's see if it's still there. This market's there we go. Now 40% for a, for a 50 basis point rate hike. Uh, the interest rates, let's look at the T-bill rates. So let's look at the US 10-year. Um, sorry, US 10-year. 
over here. Um, coming down, look at that. Look at that drop in treasury yields. So it does look like there's some relief here on the markets. So we'll keep monitoring that. I see that, I mean, I would expect the markets to actually start bouncing now. You've got Bitcoin at 19,983. I would actually expect some kind of bounce here um, pretty soon. Um, okay, so we also said that you DGENs, we had to give away this Rolex watch. This is the BitGet Rolex watch. For anyone who was trading on BitGet, you had a chance to win the Rolex watch. One, one, one trade equaled one entry. I'm glad to say that finally we have a winner. JL from Prague, how are you, brother? Hi, perfect. Thank you. Listen, you're a part of the club now, bro. You are part of the Rolex club. You, you have crazy. the Rolex. How do you feel, bro? I, you just want a Rolex. How do you feel? Unbelievable. <laughs> Tell me what happened. Tell me when you realized you won. Tell me how you realized you won. Yeah, yeah. I, I watched uh, your show, as always, as every day on Wednesday, and I saw a familiar number <laughs> in the Excel spreadsheet. So I triple-checked the number and I sent an email. <laughs> all right. So listen, first of all, First of all, much love. I'm glad that I'm glad we can do things like this. Send Rolexes to to the fam. We will speak to you offline about how to get it to you in Prague, so you don't have to pay taxes and duties and everything else that you may need to pay. And yeah, brother, I'm glad I'm glad you got it. I'm glad I'm glad we can change people's lives. I mean, Rolex for me is life changing. I don't know how you feel about it. Yeah, yeah, I feel the same. And it's an yeah. honor to be here. So thank you very much. Amazing. Much love, my friend. Much love. Much love. Much love. And to the fam, listen, much love and please give love to our sponsor. I mean, if you're not surfing with a VPN now, come on, go and get a NordVPN. They make these shows possible. They sponsor us. They are a crypto VPN. They're really on the crypto people's side and they save you guys from being hacked and they save you guys from being attacked by regulatory agencies and everything else. Um, do it, do it, do it. And let me know in the comments if you enjoyed the show today. So it was a little bit of a different show. I really had fun. I think it was absolutely, absolutely amazing. I think there was a lot of alpha. I think we had a diverse range of opinions. I love the fact that we had Meltem on the show. I love the fact that we had a, a woman on the show. Great. And she's one of the people that I really, really, really respect the most in crypto. I've respected her since 2015, 16, when, when she started to come onto the scene. Um, yeah, let us let me quickly just look at the bubbles. Ah, it's Maybe I shouldn't have looked. Maybe I shouldn't have looked. It's not looking good out there, but you know what? When it feels uncomfortable, that's when you start buying. I'm starting to nibble. I'm starting to nibble here. I'll tell you, maybe over the weekend I'll do a show and I'll tell you what I'm buying. Um, I don't think I'm buying dog coins just yet. See you guys again on Monday. Until then, have a great weekend. Trade well, my friends.